So I've come to the Sunseed Trust to find out more about um, what they're doing here. And um, yesterday I arrived and it seems like there's lots of young people and they're doing voluntary work here in the desert. Um, but I'm not quite understanding still what's going on. So I've been pointed to go and speak with a gentleman called Dave Dean, who's been here a long time. So um, Dave, could you tell me um, firstly a bit about the Sunseed and then about yourself? So how long, well, please could you tell me what you know about the Sunseed? Okay. Well, I arrived in uh, in uh, El Rio de Aguas in uh, December 1990, uh, coming down from Austria, and uh, I was I'd been a, a health practitioner in in Austria for close on six years, and I was looking for time uh, to take a sabbatical, you know, take six months off, um, and and so I I thought, well, okay, let's let's see. I had two choices; it could have been go off to. Uh, England or three choices go off to Ireland. I have family in England, family in Ireland. Maybe do a do a meditation retreat for six months, perhaps down in Devon, or maybe come to the south of Spain and uh, work four hours a day and spend fifty pounds a week. Where I was earning around about three hundred to five hundred pounds a week in in Austria and Kitzbühel. So uh, I thought, well, yeah, I think I, I think I like uh, some sunshine and and something to do. It's really boring if there's nothing to do. So I, so I came down. So I came down here to southern Spain, thirty-one years ago now. Seeing it's about December the twelfth or thirteenth now. I've had my thirty-first uh, uh, birthday in uh, El Rio de Agos. <coughs> okay. So uh, when I arrived in the village. Um, the first obvious thing was that there was no water running into the village. Uh, and having coming, coming from a farming background and having worked a lot with water, actually draining water off the land down in Dorset in southern England, uh, I kind of looked around and I said to Graham, who's the manager there, I said, hey, Graham, I reckon I can get this water flowing. Would you, would you give me... Would, would you give me um, uh, a couple of weeks on that, I think we can get this running. So we got together a team from the, the what was known as the appropriate technology department. We had we had loads of fun. Um, I really, to, we, we enjoyed what we were doing. We brought 40 bags of sand and cement and we put rebar in, we rebuilt wall, we got it flowing again, we would um we would get the sand from from the from the river not the sort of extraction that happens in 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 india and places like that just a little bit a few bags full and we would mix that and anyway yeah we we got the irrigation line working and it had been off it had not been working for about 6 months so uh so that's good and then uh i stayed for about the first couple of months I, I'm sorry, I, Dave. I'm going on and on. No, no, it's okay. On you want me to go? You no, know, it's absolutely fine. Um, yeah. what, so, how long had the, was the Sunseed Trust established at that point when you arrived thirty-one years ago? Well, it was uh, it was an organisation uh, which which stemmed out of a, a um, an organisation known as Green Deserts. And in Green Deserts, there was um, there was some kind of split between the management or the trustees of Green Deserts. And there was a man called Tim Eilawat and another one, uh, Arnold Peace. Uh, and Tim and, Ar and, and, and Arnold wanted to set something up here uh, in Europe um, with a view to look at uh, the micro risals for, for, for Arnold Peace's point of view, study the micro risal work. Now we're talking 30 some years ago, so it was quite new in those days. And uh, and and Tim Eilawat was was a stream of consciousness on appropriate technology. Uh, Tim sold a house in 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 England in order to finance the buying of a house here, which is now known as the Sunseed Main House. A friend of Tim and and uh, uh, Tim and and Arnold uh, also bought a house here. We called his name was Jeff, and so next to the main house, there's Jeff's house. And um, that's, I think it's a rent of one euro a year, something like that. So that's a part of the Sunseed bit. And then in those days, there were people from various age groups were coming to Sunseed. And there was 
Graham Savage and uh, and Shirley, his 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 wife. I guess we use the word partner these days. Um, and Shirley would do the accounts and and the and and the shopping, and Graham would be the bridge between the people in Sunseed and the trustees who are Arnold and Tim. Uh, projects were set up. Sorry, why did Tim feel that it was necessary to come down here by land and do what he was doing? Well, I guess he wasn't... Uh, there was some some difference of opinion between Green Deserts uh, and where Green Deserts were working, I'm not sure, but there was certainly a difference of opinion. There was a, there was a split within the management of Green Deserts, let's, let's put it that way, yeah? So with that split, then, then Tim and, and, and Arnold said, OK, well, let's do it our way. Uh, and they came down here, and there's the history around that. This this village was due to be uh, turned into a um, a uh, mine for gypsum, because we have some of the purest gypsum rock here uh, in in the world. It's the second biggest deposit on the planet, and and this area was due to be mined out. So houses here were worth nothing. Uh, and Dutch people first came down. Uh, we're talking now 40, 45 years ago. Shows I'm getting very ancient, living history. Uh, and the Dutch artists were buying houses. It would be cheap to buy a house here because they were all going to be knocked down anyway than it was to rent in, in Sorbas. And it was Richard who met who met um, Steve Sampson, who was sent out by, by, um, by uh, what's his name? Uh, Tim. And um, then it was Richard who informed Steve, who was looking for a place to buy here, that there was a new motorway coming through that El Tesoro really wouldn't work very well. And there was Paula here who was really fed up with this guy called Daniel, who was wanting to turn this village into, uh, into uh, kind of like a tourist village. It was uh, very many streams of different types of consciousness and awareness going on. And the, the, the end of the game is that the, the, the Sunseed people arrived. Steve was the first manager. Really noisy, you know, smoking a bit of grass here and there, getting the gardens going, developing the houses. Uh, and as far as Daniel was concerned, wanting to have his old age pensioner retreat village, that was pretty much off the cards. Uh, as far as Bob Harrington was concerned, this was immensely irritating as well because it kind of broke his dreams. So Sunseed came along and, and did a recreation of, of, of El Rio de Aguas. And so that was the kind of start in. Well, could you explain generally what its purpose was back then and it is now as well? Because when I first spoke with you this morning, you said young people are coming through and reinventing a wheel all the time and then they leave and they keep on coming through. Yeah, I, I, I would say that is exactly how it is. People... Um, it's mostly young people now. Back uh, thirty years ago, there was a mixture of 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 skills, uh, people who were experts in their field, and now I would say I don't see uh, expertise. I see uh, people with university degrees, like you might have a master's degree in this and that. I see very little evidence of of work experience. Uh, therefore, it's more uh, an organisation which seems to be in its head. Um, this is a this is what I'm noticing. It's not like saying, "Hey, you're bad and wrong because you're in your head." It's just that it's very clear in the real world that um, university uh, education, where the students come out age twenty five, twenty six, with a master, an MA but we have no practical experience and come to a place like this in El Rio de Aguas, it means that they're, they're a bit like, you know, uh, incapacitated. It's like, it's, it's in a way, it's invalid. It's, it's invalid, invalid, because here, this is a hands-on um, and a place which requires some experience in order to survive. It's a one-off place in Europe. This is the, only, this is the last um, oasis in in Western Europe. We had a, we've done like five or six documentaries now coming out from the work which I've been doing to protect us from uh, the overexploitation of the aquifer, having classed this as an ecocide, 
And one of these documentaries was produced by Escalobaja Verde. It's, it's a, um, a, a, red, a, a TV program, Spanish TV, and, and named the Ultima Oasis. And so this is like a last oasis. It's unique. We have endemic plants here. Um, it's uh, it's it's unique on on our planet. This 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 village, this off grid village where we're living. So, um, water presumably is quite scarce, and it's a very much sought after and um, precious commodity, and it means that people can survive here. But what is really the purpose behind the sun seed? What is it aiming to achieve these days? I don't know. Uh, I've had this question asked by people in Sobas. Um, I had a young bank manager in Sorbas, he was about 27, 28, born in Sorbas, and he said, hey, David, what is Sunseed about? Uh, and he lived in Sorbas all his life, you know. So I said, hey, Juan Carlos, I, you know, why don't you come out to the village? So Juan Carlos and I, we walked around the village, and and, and I could show him. But I, I don't know what Sunseed's about, I, and I don't think Sunseeders know what Sunseed is about. Um, I say, well, you know, what is your... Your modus operandi. What is your, your your purpose, intention? What is the, what are you really looking to do here? You know, and, and um, we're not we're not really getting it. Uh, I don't know. Well, I will come back to you in a moment then. Thank you very much, Dave. I want to bring in Josh here, who's um, a man that's been living here on and off and coming backwards and forwards. And what did you say to me earlier about your thoughts about here? Hello. Um, yeah, um, I know Sunset also a very long time. I've been coming, going also. My parents have lived here like 32 years ago, 31, 30 years ago. We've lived here in this village. <coughs> and I've seen seen also the things Sunset used to make. And Sunset used to be very interesting before because they used to work a lot with solar. And they had a lot of solar cooking things and trying to work with the sun and using these things like clever people and really trying to use the sun, trying to catch water. All those experiments are still on the mountain. You see a lot of stuff up there. They're not used and nobody uses them. And they had loads of things. Nobody uses them. Down there are loads of electricity, solar stuff, which they don't use anymore. <coughs> the thing from Sunseed where I see the failure is that people come for three months and go and four months go, five months go, a year and go. And there's never this learning in properly because in three months you can't learn what the other one did in a year or in half a year. So one starts something, the other one comes, wants to do something else, or wants to do it different or better. So it changes the old system from that and the new one, and that goes on and on for 30 years like that. So it doesn't work. And you mentioned that they were rich kids, you were, were, were coming now, here. Now more than before, I think. Before there were more normal people, like, not more studies, I don't know, different people who go more around the world, more often people who learn something of the world, and now they're really more rich kids who have studied, who have university, they've all got masters, and they come here, and they even get sent from Berlin University here, and they say, okay, and then they land here, and they don't expect this. If Germany would know, for example, where they're sending the people, the schools would never send them to Sunset, because they have the toilets, they haven't got, in Germany, hygienic is very high, so... They wouldn't send them here if they know how this is, which is not bad. It's just a different lifestyle. It's totally good, this lifestyle. It's different. This way of living in Germany is also not correct. It's too spießig. I don't know how you say in English, too formal. It's not the way. So I find it right to live like this and dirt and all that around is normal. We get stronger with the immune system, everything. We can't live like they want us right to live. But, well, yeah, it's, it's different. They're totally different than other people. So uh, right now, apparently, it was a period of transition at Sunseed, and uh, we're hoping to keep people here longer, because normally people have a contract and they're here just six months, but we're hoping to get some long-term residents in to give it a more sense of permanence. Or, um, w w What is happening these days, right, right here, right now, please? I've been hanging around with the Sunseeders since I'm here. They're young people, and I've been going out with a few girls of them, and so I've been hanging quite a lot with them, and I know quite a lot of the insights also, because the girls have been telling me things. <laughs> so everything they like they've said they haven't got an idea they don't even know it's a future they were thinking or trying out they had some meetings with the trustees just not long ago deciding what they're going to do and the plan was to have three four people staying there forever or for three four years at least to have somebody responsible who knows everything and explain new people <laughs> everybody was offered everybody saying yeah great idea great idea we're doing this we're going to change all the rooms we're going to close for a year and do some work on it now 
are you going to stay? No. Are you going to stay? Who's going to stay? Everybody thinks it's a great idea, but nobody wants to stay. So that's the thing again. It's people who stay for three months. Everybody has their own life. Nobody really wants this responsibility. So at the end, it still doesn't work. It's like with the veggie boxes. It's sustainable village and they buy veggie boxes from one woman does everything alone and they are like 20 people 30 people sometimes and they don't manage to do their own vegetables it's sad it's really mm. sad well I, i'm sorry to hear this what positives can you see coming out of here in the future what do you think will happen i don't really see a future in them i'm sorry <laughs> i don't see it i hope they can change and i'm up for them i like the persons they're all good people i hang around with them but as sunset as a thing I don't see a future because there's just not a manager behind us. Nobody okay. who is there and says this will work. If people come and go, it's never going to work. Yeah. So what could the, the ultimate point of the Sunsea Trust be here? What, what, what should they be achieving like they used to in the past? Developing more technology? I think just being part of the village. That's the most important. Being part of the village, part of the future, because it's going to get very difficult in the future. And if we don't hang together, it's going to be problematic. <laughs> so it's important that they all maybe get their heads together and learn to plant their own vegetables and keep together as a big community. If there's 30 or 20 or 15 or even 10 people down there and we are 3, 4, 5 up here, and 6 over there, 5 down, 1 there, this village could be great and we don't need nothing from nowhere if we all work together. We've got chickens, they've got goats and the other ones have got 30 people, man, and they're buying vegetables from one person. If those 30 people make vegetables and bread for the whole village, we find out. So that's the thing which should happen, but they're so stuck in themselves, Sunseed, 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 many people came to Sunseed and after half a year they didn't even know this house is up here. They didn't never, they just stayed down there in the Project Sunseed, they never came up here, so I had to, come on, there's another life up there, wow, the village is big, hey, cool, it's just they're stuck down there a bit too much, they even say it themselves. The last group who was there, there was 25 people and I've talked with them a lot and they said really, we are a bit stuck, it's true. And that's what they're working on also, but these people are gone already. And that was like five months ago, six, those people are gone. Now there are new people here. Now meet them again, speak to them, try to explain them how something is, how this works, how everybody... It's difficult. It's really complicated. But if some people stay, hopefully it will change. It just needs two or three people who stay there and get it in front. And I'm positive that it will work out everything. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank you. Um, so, Dave, would you like to add anything to that <laughs> at all, please? Yeah, I mean, your question, your question to Josh, yeah. <clears throat> what do you see, uh, what do you see coming forward, coming, com coming out from this, uh, fr fr from the Sunseed organisation? It's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, okay, so I think, First to look uh, to look back over the last thirty years and to see well how how it it has changed and hasn't changed is sort of a kind of paradoxical. Um, let's see what uh, it seems to be brilliant in, in the ability to stay much the same and to avoid being developed. So there's there's a very unusual aspect to, to 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 Sunseed that whenever anybody goes to Sunseed, there is always space to learn something because everything is still in a condition of um, failing to failing in how shall I use the word excellence? What I'm looking for in 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 my surroundings are is 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 excellence and and comfort. Um, Sunseed is looking to be teaching people, and and for people to be coming in and 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 learning, and they've certainly achieved that. They've achieved a a, a group of young, inexperienced people, and the amount of learning that is possible is phenomenal here. But they don't have teachers, and that, of course, is the difficulty. And I do believe there's sometimes a sense of perhaps a little sense of insecurity within the, the, uh, the Sunseed uh, group. Um, because we have in the village, we're really quite sort of professional, really. We have Tim Bernhardt, who is um, a acknowledged master craftsman, and his house, the Peter Esquela, which is my second house, as a point of interest in Andalusia. Do you have David Dean up here as a, as as a, as a, as an expert working with the United Nations for harmony with nature on Earth jurisprudence? And I say to the Sunseeders, look, 
we are here as resource for you guys. You can really come and ask, you know, uh, what we know about nature. Uh, Tim is really the, a world expert on, on, on the pita plant, on the agaves. Um, and I uh, said, guys, you know, you come and come and you, you are welcome. But there's this feeling that, that no, that almost that we're dangerous. And, and so this is really weird. And so this is something which, which I think we'll see breaking down to look, to look into the future. Whereas I think when we look into the future, we can see that life is going to get more difficult. There is no question about this. And as Joshua was saying, we need to work together in harmony, especially in, in, a, in a small village, which is completely off grid. So, um, so I see looking into the future that we will, we will automatically uh, come more together. What Sunseed as an organization morphs into or out of I don't know. The people who do come, they're decent kind of people. They do seem to come from, how should we call it, the, you know, the middle income, the middle class, middle income in different cultures, the different ways that we describe the, the levels of society. I think in England, it, I've been out of England since 1986, so I'm not exactly in tune with some of the English languaging of the day. Um, but yeah, people who have money, they have security, they can go back into their secure lives uh, and at the moment and spend a month or two out here in Spain kind of living a bit rough and it's kind of fun and it's okay and then we can go back. This is not a direction and an aim of, 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 of an organisation which has mandates in the British Charity Commissioners and with, the, and with Government House. And I can read those mandates and I put them across to the Sunsea to say, do you keep these mandates? Uh, and their, their, their chief trustee, uh, when she was here, she actually died, she was here. I don't want to speak badly of the dead, but I tell the truth, I showed her the mandate, and she said, I think we can keep that. I said, really? You know, it's like, that's a bit shocking, you don't even know the mandate. So that's a kind of situation. So I would see that that, that being the case, there was there has been and still continues to be a lack of the... The, the mandates which are set within the charity commissioners and which are set within the um, uh, government house, which is because Sunseed works as a charity and, and, and as Sunseed Limited, so it works in these two frameworks. And so those legal, those, that legal framework is not adhered to. Um, I've spoken about this to, to the people at Sunseed, said, look, there's a lack of integrity here. Um, there's this English expression that falls on deaf ears. Uh, and so now the there is an understanding, as as Joshua said, and as as, as you um, Ed, you've also noticed down there, a sense that we we if we is and I am Sunseed, we we need to change. We, we in order to survive, basically, we need to change. We need to become clear and and directed, and have people here who stay here for a period of time. And this is a long answer to the question: What do I what do I see as coming in the future? I see there's always a, there's always the 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 potential for a for a, a thriving village in times of great difficulty, and I see Sunseed can be part of that that part of us as a thriving village in difficult times because we are familiar with being completely off grid. It's this internet service we're using. We have our own little node up on the mountain. It's not ours. It belongs to Next Communications that I could speak to next and say, we have enough expertise in this village to supply your node with electricity. Uh, and I said, like you do for in bigger setups in the mountains, I said, we can do the same here. So we have our own little village node up on the mountain. And my, my, my job is I have a contract with Next Communication, which I didn't need to sign for nearly five years. You know, it's just like there is this sense in this community and around us when we can connect with each other in, in, in a human way, um, there is this sense of community, the sense of willingness for, for people to help each other. And so out of the village, our network over the 30 years is, is very wide. And so we have a, um, a community, shall we say, which, is, which extends through uh, really quite a wide network, Almeria, Aguadulce, we, and, and Carboneras, and these various names I can, I can mention of the towns and the centres of population. 
uh, and then a worldwide um, network of people because of the work that I do uh, with the United Nations, with the End Ecocide Group, with the Rights of Nature Group, uh, with my friends in Ecuador, you know, uh, uh, with friends in South Africa, with friends in Colombia, with and so it's a big network that we have reaching out from this little wee village, El Rio de Aguas. Well, could you tell me a bit more about the work that you've been doing, Dave, with the United Nations? Okay. We've been, I have to step back a little bit. Um, round about the turn of the century, um, we, we were, shamans were coming from Ecuador, from, the, from southeastern Ecuador, sharing their medicine, the, the ayahuasca medicine in particular, back from about the year 2000, 2001, 2002. So every year, shaman would come over from Ecuador and we would share the medicine here. And then in 2012, one of those shaman got in touch with me and said, David, we really need some help uh, because we have a, a, a large um, Chinese-owned um, exploitation uh, of our land, our indigenous land, uh, for a mega mine, the copper and, and, and gold mine, called the Mirador mine. And here are the reports from a firm of independent consultants uh, about the dangers of this mine and quite a lot, quite a lot of work through ETEC International. And so I read through all these, uh, these reports and, um, and then I understood the, the, the dangers of, of this mine. <clears throat> I put this around my network and I got a lead into Amazon Watch and Pachamama Alliance. I wrote to them saying, hey, is, is, is this actually true, what, I, what I'm reading here? Uh, and they said, and I said, you know, what about doing this and that and the other? And they wrote back from, from Ecuador and said, uh, you know, can you help us? Although, blimey, you, you guys are, uh, are on site and you, you're stuck. So I went out to, I went out to the Amazon, I went out to the jungle. I spent time in, in Shua village with my friend there. And also up in, in Quito with, uh, uh, with NGOs. Um, we came, we came back here. They drank a lot of ayahuasca using this medicine uh, to look at how we can inform the seventy small villages in the area, tribal villages of the of the threats which are posed by this mine, to like, rather you know discourage people from selling their land to a mine when that mine has the potential to destroy all life in the area. And so, I uh, came back here. Uh, we created maps looking at the, 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 as we say, you know, the points, the, the points of creation, like, like water, earth, wind, and fire. Uh, and these maps we created, having got hold of the hydrological maps of the area, superimposed the mine on these hydrological maps, showing the, the damage to the, to the rivers and the waterways, uh, and the other damages, bringing in the data from the mine, like 60,000 tons of rock mined every day, like the destruction of the, of the cloud forests, like getting in the data there, how many thousand hectares of cloud forest to be destroyed, how many thousand tons of toxic waste with sulfuric acid, arsenic, cadmium, um, mercury, uh, how many million tons to be stored behind the, the the dams, which which in theory hold this waste in perpetuity, um, and now uh, we find that the environment impact assessments have not been followed in the building of these dams, and we have a worst case scenario of a two hundred and sixty meter high dam collapsing with 390 million cubic meters of toxic waste behind. Um, this would produce a wave 260 meters high, which in the first 10 minutes would kill 2,000 people. And when that wave stops moving, having moved down the River Zamora and the River Santiago, it would stop at the confluence of the Santiago and the River Marignon, and all the land and the rivers behind that wave would be irredeemably polluted and covered in toxic waste mud up to a height of 260 meters up the sides of the valleys, having killed all life and all human habitation 
in the valleys. And then, of course, it rains and it rains and the water still comes down those river valleys, which are totally toxic. And this toxic rainwater then goes into the Amazon. And then it travels 7,000 kilometers down the Amazon. And so we have world expert Steve Emmerman on this. He is vice chairman of the um, committee um, of the failure of tailings dams around the planet. Uh, first class engineer. Um, we brought a case to the Constitutional Court uh, with Steve as our expert witness, a 30, 35, 40 page explanation of exactly the science behind our claim that this was contrary to the uh, Ecuadorian Constitution for the Rights of Nature. Um, the case was dismissed on, uh, on, on a point, a word, which is the word immediate. The, the judge said not immediate. So we contested that, and that was also uh, turned down. Then we wrote to the nine judges of the Constitutional Court. Um, again, again, turned down. We're talking billions and billions of dollars, and we're talking about a mine owned by the Chinese, and we're talking about indebtedness of Ecuador to the Chinese, and this mine uh, supplying money to the government to directly to China uh, to pay off some of that debt. Uh, the... The prospective damage is so extreme um, that uh, it's this is this is a world class event. Bottom line, uh, and we're working in the the world class level. I have uh, presented this to the United Nations in Geneva, the Geneva Forum, on three or four occasions. Um, we do have <coughs> voices worldwide and support all worldwide. Right now. Uh, we're we're creating um, uh, animation uh, showing how this this toxic waste will travel down those waterways. Uh, we're creating an animation that's uh, an animator in in South Africa actually. Um, and even though you're the even though you're fighting against uh, the Chinese who have billions invested in this, mm -hmm. what do you think the outcome will be? The outcome what we're aiming for is an injunction on the mine. We have a case in the Inter-American uh, Court on Human Rights in Costa Rica. We're obtaining uh, information from the Ministry of Mines, but they have, as of last week, refused to give us information uh, which is actually in the public domain. So we have, uh, we have a case of the... We also have our lawyer, Julio, has sued the Minister of Mines and the Vice Chairman of the, of the Board of Natural Resources in Ecuador, for illegitimately refusing to, to, to forward information. Um, we, we have some legal challenges where we're on the case. Uh, in this case, it's very clear that the administration are completely out of order and we can do... We, they have given us a stick which we can beat them with. Because I can write article, for instance, to The Ecologist. I've done several for The Ecologist. And it's, it's wordsmithing. It's, it's framing these situations. We need an injunction on the mine and we need those tailings dams as they're called. These are the dams which hold back the toxic waste. They need to be inspected as into the, the way that they're constructed uh, and their, their, their safety. What has happened is that uh, we can see that they've not been constructed according to the environmental impact uh, assessment instructions and we know from these environmental impact um, uh, 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 surveys that the foundation material of these dams will probably um, break during the life of the mine uh, because there is a probability of an earthquake which will destroy these foundations within the life of the mine. Now when you've got a probability, it's actually 6%, you know, so we've even got figures on this, but a probability of 6% when we have a dam constructed at what is described in the Canadian Dam Association as a dam of extreme risk should it fail, extreme risk to everything surrounding, surrounding, that dam needs to be built extremely securely. And, and it is not extremely secure when there's a 6% chance that within the life of the mine, this dam will collect, collapse, releasing 390 million cubic meters of toxic waste. Uh, which will destroy all life over 1,600 kilometers of river valleys and pollute the largest river in, in the world. 
containing 20% of, of the world's fresh water, the River Amazon, and 2,500 species of fish, and we're looking at an apocalypse. And that's how it is. And so this is my job, is actually to put this apocalypse into words which are understandable, because we're looking at at a situation which has never happened on this planet before. We could not have explained Chernobyl before it happened. And as Steve Emmerman said, you know, this is like we're looking at like a nuclear winter. I said, what do you mean, Steve? And so then I, I got the facts and the figures out of Steve, what was and what is the worst case. And so my job is to be able to put this across to people. And we also have a team working, uh, a social media team coming on board and also looking to work within the new emerging metaverse. I see that we can use social media, uh, can be used within the metaverse, within the, the, the platform such as uh, 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 um, uh, Decentraland or Sandbox, are the ones particularly at the moment where we see, see virtual property sold for over 2 million euros. It's like, hey, okay, we got something moving here. And then within that, we put social media in there. Then we get this mass of, of younger people. So my need, our need, is to work with, with my generation coming down into the, you know, the, say the 40s or 50s. And then when we notice that the average age of population on planet Earth is 29, we need to really move into this mass of young people as in the, uh, the various movements brought together by Greta Thunberg to demand that, that these dams must be, must be inspected and we must not allow a catastrophe of this scale to ever happen on our planet. Well, thank you very much, Dave. How old are you? Um, how old am I? 73, I forget. Yeah, I'm 73, yeah. Very good. And lastly, yesterday I heard that the house that you've built here had won an award from a National Geographic. Is that true? Uh, okay, no, the, the, no, no, it wasn't that. It was there was a team from the National Geographic traveling uh, through North Africa and through Europe, um, looking at, at environmental footprint. And uh, this house is a very low environmental footprint. So Hayden was it was the name of the producer, and I've forgotten the other one. Uh, and it was it was a series, um, and so the, the the National Geographic team stayed here a few days filming, and showing how 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 this works with solar panels, and we we were fitting solar solar panels on the roof at the time, and how the hot water system works, and how we have very low environmental impact, how the wastewater system worked, and uh, and we were part of a series on put out by National Geographic. Uh, and and it was a serious series. The next one after us was the mayor of Barcelona. So I thought, you know, we were perhaps just a nice bit of like relief amongst it all. And and uh, and uh, I do think it's very important to laugh and have fun and 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 get things done with with humour. So we, we we had we had a humorous time. We had a we were actually were showed in 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 in, in two of their series is the end of one, the beginning of another one. Uh, because what we have here is, is is a lifestyle which is really very comfortable and is also um, with a very low environmental footprint. So how off-grid are you here? Are you, are, are you on the mains with anything here? We're 100% off-grid. The, the input that I have is, for, is, is with gas, uh, using gas for cooking. Um, I've just brought in a, a set of, of lithium... Iron, I-R-O-N, uh, phosphate batteries. Um, having a little trouble with the inverter controller, but we get this up and running. Uh, then we'll have enough energy to use a ceramic stove. Uh, so we can then move off the, off, off the gas uh, and be using really solar energy more and more. So I'm looking at, at more and more. And also we may even have enough energy to power an electric vehicle. So I, I'm looking to be as autonomous, autonomous means as self-sufficient as possible as the times around us look like they're becoming more difficult. And to create a space which can be inspirational to people because we can see that we can sell a house for incredible prices in the cities, absolutely astronomical. And with that sort of money, 
it's possible to buy a, a, a place in the Campo and do exact, more or less exactly what I've done because I've converted an old farmhouse, keeping the, keeping the, uh, the same lines and shapes kind of of the old farmhouse, putting inside um, a really comfortable lifestyle. And um, many people in interviews talk about how it's going to get worse in the future. What what do you think is going to happen, please? Well, we have a difficulty with the with the with our with our foundational uh, setup of society, which is the the foundation of the economic structures which we have. With this uh, COVID, well, we have we had in twenty oh eight we had a serious problem uh, when Lehman Bank went went down the tubes, and it was necessary for the Federal Reserve uh, to do a lot of quantitative easing, in other words, creating a lot of money. And we looked at many trillions of, of dollars which were then produced and were able to put back in place a foundation which was crumbling, which was the banking, the foundation of, of international banking. So we held that together and that was cool, but that meant there's going to be a lot more interest needs to be paid because every loan, every money which is, which is introduced in the system is load-bearing. And I mean, we kind of got around that, but now but then we moved into the COVID situation uh, where the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank said, hey, guys, you need to look after your people. You need to borrow money. Here is the money. And there are 17, 18, I don't know how many trillion dollars have now gone out into the world, which is all interest-bearing. Well, the bottom line is that if I've got a mortgage on my house uh, and I have too much interest, you know, and I have to keep paying back that mortgage at a rate which is above my income per month, then I'm either going to starve or I'm going to lose my house. So bring that up into a situation where you have a country which, whose interest rate on the loan is higher than the income, what happens to their country? Does it starve or does it tax its people more and more and more? Or are we looking at, at, at an economic system which is in great difficulty? We see prices going up right now. We see uh, in, in America, as we speak today, we see the highest rate of inflation for 40 years. I think we're running at 6.4 or 6 6.4%, which means people will have more trouble paying their mortgages, which means that the, the, the system is kind of breaking down. The system which is coming in its place is the system of the digital currencies. Uh, we see countries all over the world, uh, including the Federal Reserve, including the Bank of England in terms of America and England and, and Sweden and Norway and Spain and the Europe, uh, actually the European Central Bank, uh, and China well ahead, introducing digital currencies. Now, this means that if we have a, a digital currency and we are living in, in, in England, okay, uh, then, the, then the Bank of England can immediately insert 500 pounds sterling or 1,000 pounds sterling into your digital wallet, just like that with a snap of the fingers. And this is potentially the way forwards. Uh, that we will be moving out of physical money into digitalized money. Uh, but the, the, the time of, 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 of change, I think like, uh, like, uh, like a woman giving birth to a child, it's a very painful process, but the end of it is really rather amazing and there's a lot of love involved. Uh, I think that there is, a, there is a chance, and it seems like it is so, that we are going through this kind of period of rebirthing. And within this period of rebirthing, we can see famine is now, you know, it's like the Grim Reaper, but it's a very serious situation. Famine is now uh, stalking our planet, as in Afghanistan, as in Lebanon, uh, as in Yemen. Um, these are three countries where famine is, as in Sudan. Um, we see big problems with climate change in Sudan. They've got flood upon flood upon flood in southern Sudan, and the waters are still rising in southern Sudan. Uh, and there is this is a disaster which is happening as we're speaking today. Uh, Yemen, uh, Lebanon is looked at as the the largest financial collapse in we don't know how many years. It's absolutely catastrophic. And Afghanistan, 
we see a, a, a complete breakdown of hospital services, of, of food supplies. We've seen drought in Afghanistan and, of course, thousands of displaced people, hundreds of thousands. And so we see situations around our planet now which are not being really addressed and which will have to be addressed. They're based around economics, around we humans fighting and killing each other because that's apparent that is what we humans do then we really have to grow our our global consciousness into an awareness that we need to work together because if we keep on going as we are uh, we will we will basically suicide ourselves um, and the changing climate is an example of this and this is a very real changing of climate and this means that we will have to change our ways or else we will see a huge reduction in human populations thank you dave is there anything you'd like to add to this that i haven't asked you that springs to mind like a message to people listening uh be up be optimistic be grounded i say it's really really important to have a sense of who we who we are individually and the and the and the the strength that we have individually inside each and every one of us and to feel for me i feel a connection with uh, a strong connection with nature this is very grounding and then to be able to to take on board by that i mean to be able to accept that there's an immense amount of problems out there in the world and to for me, again, you know, I understand the problems. I like to know what they are. I'm not depressed or, or how should we say, you know, hugely emotionally upset. Uh, I think it's very important to understand what's happening around us, to face it, to be grounded and to have a sense of a sense of the spiritual, a sense of the creative force behind everything. Uh, a, a sense that we are part of uh, a, a time and a time of immense change and to look for the part that we're going to play in this time of immense change and, and to hold a position of, of light and optimism and to give each other that it's, it's going to be okay. You know, we're going to be okay. We're going to look after each other and we're going to care for each other, with each other and work together as an extended family. The, uh, yeah, we have a situation here in, uh, in, uh, in El Rio de Aguas, which occurred in 2014. I remember in my earlier interview, <clears throat> we were talking about the shaman of Ecuador and how it became involved in, in the protection of the Shua national territories. Uh, and in, that was in 2012. In, it was 2013, maybe even in 2012, I was, uh, I was in Ecuador. And it was at that time that I attended the... Was it that time? It's amazing how time flies. Excuse me for being a little vague here. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the story is that I was invited to... I'd been to Australia. I was talking about the Mirador Mine at an event in Australia. This is my first speaking event. I was a little nervous about it, but I thought, well, let, let, let's go. And so I flew out to Australia, luckily enough money in my pocket. And without money in the pocket, it's very hard to, to, to move uh, situations as, as environmental situations. The most expensive thing is really travel. So anyway, good, I could travel to Australia. And I joined a conference in Australia, uh, Australian Earth Wild Earth Law. Uh, wonderful um, reception. Uh, it was in Brisbane. And I talked about uh, society's role in the protection of fragile ecosystems. And I gave an update on what was happening at the Mirador Mine in, in Ecuador. When I was out there, I was staying in a hotel with a lady called Natty Green, purely by chance. Uh, and I would have breakfast every morning with Natty, and she was the convener of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, uh, representing the Global Alliance e in Australia. We, we really, well, we liked each other. We had, we had good fun together. And she said, David, would you, would you like to come to our summit conference uh, 
of the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature in Quito next year. So I said, well, Natty, if you think I've some some service or, you know, uh, uh, some kind of, you know, if I have a value for everybody, then, yeah, please invite me. So I, I was invited, and that, that was in 20, 2013 or 2014. Uh, at that summit conference, I met a lady called Mumta Ito, who was putting together a citizen's initiative to bring rights of nature into the Lisbon Treaty, which is the formation treaty of the European Union. And so I said, uh, hey, well, Mumta, okay. And she said, David, would you like to uh, take on yourself to... Uh, work with this this uh, citizens initiative and get work together to bring one million votes over seven countries of the European Union. So I thought, okay, this is a good challenge. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's get into this. And so this twenty twenty say thirteen fourteen, and so working on this for about eighteen months, bringing getting into very good communication with people all over Europe involved in the environmental movement, uh, of course, especially with the rights of nature, with lawyers. Right, we wrote a draft um, proposal for the, uh, for the European Union. And, and then in 2014, the river here in El Rio de Aguas suddenly started losing its water at really rather high speed. I wrote to um, Professor Maria Calafor of University of Almeria and Group Ecologists Mediterranean, uh, 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 Ecologists in Action, uh, informing of the situation. And then in, in June 2014, Jose Maria Calafora um, made a TV broadcast on Canal Sur uh, referring to superintensive olive trees being built over the aquifer which supplies our river and supplies this unique ecosystem, uh, outlining the fact that these olive trees were destroying the water supply, were, were minimizing, depleting is a better word than destroying the, the water supply here. Um, then I realized that with my contacts, I was going to be the one who was going to be able to put this onto the international stage and so I said to Mumta, I said, Mumta, really, I've got to look after my own home uh, and, and therefore I'm going to leave you. You need to find someone else to take over my position here because if I don't look after my own home, then I'm not going to feel comfortable uh, because this is my home, my people, it's where I live. And so I was then able to immediately access the End Ecoside network and I... Uh, I Met with Polly Higgins and then over in St I went over to Stroud, and uh, on a World Cafe broadcast, uh, along with a, along with another situation on the planet, I was able to put this situation here, this eco side of El Rio de Aguas, out to the world. Um, we set up a Facebook account. I got twenty five, twenty eight thousand followers on that one. Uh, I used this as a as 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 a base here. Because here in a, in the southeastern area of Spain, we're still somewhat in the Wild West. Uh, we have very wealthy people who own property, businesses, land. And we who live here, especially the local people, we are like the indigenous people, like the indigenous tribes of Ecuador, where we have no economic clout. And therefore, it's okay to trash us and our lives to extract all the water and and then we're we're finished uh but i i'm um, i built all these contacts and so i was able to uh explain this situation we made uh, we made we made five or six documentaries the first one we made ourselves here with friends from england and i was interviewing local farmers and there's one jose lorente we interviewed and in the interview uh I say, well, Jose, it's money, you know, and he says, yep, it's money, and it's like, how much do you want, and shut your mouth, and like, and, and he did this in brilliant Spanish style. Um, part of my network also included the president of the Obje uh, uh, Objective Science International, who runs the Geneva Forum in the United Nations in Geneva every year. So, uh, with... Um, with Thomas was his name. So, so with Thomas, then I get invited to to join this Geneva Forum in the UN, 
uh, and I present as rights of nature why we need to have rights for nature. Okay, and so within this instance, uh, I extracted from our documentary Jose Lorente saying exactly how it is here and, and what we face here in terms of vested interest and money, uh, which is resulting in the eco side of our, our environment and, and our ecosystems. Um, it's been a very difficult uh, situation here and is somewhat similar to the situation we face in Ecuador, is that this situation is very small and very easy for population to hold. We talk about 5,000 uh, hectares of land. We talk about 6 million olive trees on 5,000 hectares. We talk about an extraction of water which is 400% over and above what is in the aquifer. And we talk about the aquifer going dry. And, and also part of my actions here, working again with the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, we brought a case to the International Tribunal on the Rights of Nature alongside uh, COP17, I think it was, in Bonn. And so I was able to, we called the case Almeria Waters. Um, I presented the case in the broad, in the broad overview, uh, 20 minutes. It's a luxury to have 20 minutes to talk in these situations. And then Ian Holborn, uh, who had been done a study of the flora and the fauna over an 18-month period, then presented the situation about the flora and fauna and the lack of management from the Medio Ambiente and the Junta de Andalusia and the ignorance about what is actually here. And then a lady called Sheila did the, uh, the effects that we have on the, uh, the, that is happening on, on the social life here, where we have, in fact, 8,000 people directly reliable on this aquifer. We have the boreholes drying. Uh, we have depopulation. We have uh, the village of Gotcha, which used to have 100 people, now has uh, five or six people living in. The school is finished. We have a depopulation caused by lack of water. And in, in the more easy words, people say, well, desertification. But when that brings down into the effects on individual people's lives, people can no longer grow vegetables. They can no longer have their pig, their goat, their rabbits, their ducks, their chickens, their honeybees, because there's no water. And so these are the points which I brought to the International Tribunal. And the, 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 the judgment was... Bottom line, this is wrong. Well, of course, it is wrong with some nice words around that wrongness. From contacts in the UN, we got a brilliant lawyer called Cristina Alvarez Bacariso. Um, we formed a, a cultural association here called Ecocidio El Rio. Uh, myself as the president so that I can sign any legal forms. And with Cristina, we, sent, uh, we presented to the Junta de Andalusia uh, a claim of their negligence since 1998, beautifully written, again, 20, 30 pages, and we got a result. We got the Junta de Andalusia to write a 17-point plan for the restoration of the aquifer. Would they follow it? No, they haven't followed it. They really have not followed it. We have written letters, ask, you know, saying why not, which not, what's going on. The group ecologists Mediterranean have sent, ecologists in action have sent. We've received no reply and no reply. So none of us can afford to run legal cases against an administration which could keep us paying money, paying money, paying money and getting nowhere. So on this case, we're kind of stuck. Right now, again, as we're speaking right now, we have a new hydrological plan for, for, Andal for Andalusia. The, the take on that plan by the president of Group Ecologists Mediterranean, uh, it's brilliantly written, and he explains why this new plan is ineffective uh, in reference to this over-exploitation of our aquifer. Um, we are still losing water. Uh, we are, to give the kind of more of an optimistic point, because it sounds a little pessimistic, what I've been saying on the more optimistic point, uh, we are living in an area of karst and yeso. And this immediate area, which is one of the supplies for the river, uh, recharges water very rapidly after a big rainstorm. Uh, it's because we have over... 
1,200 to 1,500 cave entrances within a six hectare area and underground caverns forming small aquifers, small hold, water holding areas. And when it rains, big rain, we can have good flow in the river for five months. This year, we've had 370 litres per square metre, which is uh, the measure of rainfall. It's, it's 370, OK? Uh, last year, it was 250. The year before, 250. So this year, we've had more rainfall. Uh, we've had a recharge of the, of the immediate small aquifers surrounding us. And our water supply in El Rio Aguas is, is better this year than it has been in previous years despite the continuing extraction of water over the aquifer and the drying up of, of the land and the drying up of the supplies of water for Sorbas. Sorbas was out of water for a day, two or three days ago. Um, our supply, we're okay. We, we have water for washing and showering uh, from the river and washing up. Drinking water we take from, uh, from a spring in, in, in a village called Karyatith, a little higher up in the mountains. Uh, because the water from the river here is very heavily mineralized uh, and is not good for our liver and kidneys, so it's better we get the fresh water. Okay, that was a little round there. Okay.